Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of baptism. Lord, and that it is a picture of what our salvation is like in Christ. And we thank you that your son didn't stay in heaven, but that you sent him here for us. Lord, and tonight we get to witness his baptism in the word. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to make this passage come alive to us tonight. Or that we would see in it more of who you are and what you came to earth to do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. When my mom and dad got married, my dad was a Catholic and my mom was a Baptist. She was a Protestant. Uh, so much so that on the day of their wedding, my mom actually got excommunicated from her Baptist church. In the, in the local bulletin in the newsletter, it said, the hands of fellowship have been withdrawn from Lisa Ferris, who was my mom. So because she married a Catholic, uh, her church kind of uh, kicked her out. My dad's family, it was a really big deal too, because my dad was raised Catholic. He was confirmed. He was a choir boy. He did the whole thing. His mom is 100% Italian, so she's a Roman, Roman Catholic. It's very important to her that they are Catholic. And so when I started to study theology and learn some of the differences between Catholics and Protestants, I asked my dad, what was it that finally uh, kind of pushed him over the edge and made him uh, desire to become a Baptist or a Protestant? And I was expecting some big theological reason, some huge reason that he gave for making this change, and what he said surprised me. He said that as he had gone to church with my mom, that he realized that the guy who was preaching was just like him. He was a husband and a father. He was a guy who mowed his grass and cleaned out his garage on the weekend. He was somebody that my dad could relate to and could identify with. And all the people that had taught him over the years were people that he couldn't, people that were separate from him. But he identified with his Baptist pastor because they had so many things in common. He felt like this guy could really speak into his life and teach him something. And that's one of the... One of the beautiful things about the church, the fact that we can identify with one another, the fact that we're all at similar life stages, and even if we're past the life stage of somebody else, we can relate to that person because we've gone through what they're going through, or they've gone through what we're going through, and we can share life together and seek to live out the godly life that God's Word tells us to together because we're like one another. And one of the amazing things about Christ is that Contrary to nearly every other world religion, Jesus became like us. Christianity is the only religion that's significant at all where the God becomes like the people. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of God. Of the people. So Jesus became like us in every respect. He came down to earth. He lived a human life so that he could be made like us, so that he could pay the penalty that we were due for our sins, but also so that after his death, after he rose again, he could ascend into heaven and intercede for us. He knows everything that we go through 
so he knows how to intercede for us. Tonight, in our text, we're going to see in Matthew 3, 13-17, Jesus get baptized. We know that from last week that John baptized people with water. He baptized them with water for repentance. So these crowds would come to John, he preached to them, he said, repent for the kingdom is at hand, and these people would confess their sins, they'd repent, and then he'd baptize them. We know from elsewhere in theology that Jesus didn't need to repent. He didn't come with anything to John to confess. He came to be baptized because that's just one of the many ways that he became like us in every respect. In his baptism, Jesus identifies with us in life. We're also going to see later in the text that God identifies Jesus as his son. After his baptism, these things happen that reveal that Jesus is God's son. So that's our main point tonight, that Jesus identifies with us in baptism and God identifies Jesus as his son. We're going to see this by asking two questions of the text. The first three verses in verses 13 through 15, we're going to ask why was Jesus baptized? He didn't have any sins to confess, so what was he doing in his baptism? And then the last two verses, we're going to see what's revealed about Jesus after him, after his baptism. So let's read Matthew 3, 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows, and you'll find tonight's passage on page 808. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in verse 13, we see that Jesus has a purpose for coming to John. Uh, This phrase here where it says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. It could be worded as in order to be. He came with the purpose of being baptized by John. And we also know that's true because where John is, we saw on the map last week, where John was by the Jordan was over 70 miles from where Jesus lived. So Jesus traveled from his hometown in Galilee down to where John is by the Jordan River over 70 miles. This would be like us leaving here tonight and walking to Wentzville. We wouldn't do that without a specific reason. Nobody in their right mind would drive to Wentzville, let alone walk there without a reason. And while there is a white castle there... So we know that Jesus went there for a purpose. He went there to be baptized. But how did he know that John was going to be there? How did he know that John was going to be down there by the Jordan, over 70 miles away from his hometown? You know, he's not just out walking around one day, and he sees John, and he says, hey, there's a river, baptize me. He goes there because he knows that John's going to be there. But how? Well, he knew because John and Jesus knew each other. We learn from Luke's gospel that they were related When the angel comes to Mary to tell her that Jesus is going to be born, one of the things that he says to her to convince her that it's really going to happen exactly how he said it was going to happen, he says, your relative 
Elizabeth is with child. This lady who you know as childless is going to have a kid and you're related to her. We don't really know how they were related. They could have been cousins. They could have been something else. But we know that Jesus and John the Baptist were related. They both had miraculous birth stories that happened around the same time. Jesus was born of a virgin. We know that. We know how the story was communicated. John was born of some lady who was really old, who had a husband who was really old, and they had never had kids. So the family would have shared these two similar birth stories that happened around the same time, and they would have known about each other. And just imagine what it would be like if one of your relatives was doing what John did. If one of your relatives, somebody you were related to, was out in the middle of nowhere, they were preaching to people about the kingdom of God coming, and huge crowds were coming them to be baptized. It wouldn't be long before somebody we were related to, probably our mothers, called us and said, did you hear what so-and-so is doing out there in the middle of nowhere? And we would go to check it out because we were related to them. So Jesus goes to John. He travels 70 miles so that he can be baptized by him. But we find out in verse 14 that John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. John wants to prevent him from being baptized. Why? Why doesn't John want to baptize Jesus? They're they're related, after all. Shouldn't he want to do this for this person that he knows? Well, he doesn't want to baptize him because he does know who he is. John doesn't want to baptize Jesus because he knows that Jesus is this mightier one that he has just finished telling the crowds about. He's just finished telling the people about this mightier one who's going to come, whose shoes he's not even worthy to carry. And he's going to come. So John knows that this is who Jesus is. Jesus is coming to him. And he knew he was the mightier one. You see, John would have known the family stories just like Jesus would have known the family stories. He would have known that uh, an angel appeared to Joseph and said that your son is going to save our people from their sins. John would have known that that's who Jesus was. He would have known that shepherds and wise men came to worship Jesus as he was a child. He would have known that Herod tried to kill Jesus as an infant because he perceived him as a threat. And John would have known that this is who it was that was coming to him to be baptized. And even if he didn't know those stories, even if John didn't really know those things, uh, when Mary visits Elizabeth in Luke's Gospel, what she says when, when Mary arises, she says, What have I done? Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to visit me. Elizabeth knew that the child in Mary's womb was her Lord. And which one of us, if we knew that about somebody, wouldn't tell our children about it? She would have told John when he was born, as he grew up, who his relative was, that he was the one who was coming to save their people from their sins. So John knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is this mightier one, and he knows who he is. He's already said... Last week, he said, I baptize with water for repentance. That's all I can do. People come to me, they confess their sins, and I baptism, baptize them in the water. But Jesus, he said, baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He knew that that's the baptism that Jesus offered. And so he said, I don't want to baptize you. I need you to baptize me. So John tries to stop him. But then we find out how Jesus responds to that. In verse 15, Jesus says something that convinces John to go ahead and baptize him, even though all these things that John knows and all these things that John thinks are true. 
Jesus says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let's take these one phrase at a time. Jesus says, let it be so now. He's saying, right now, at this point in history, right now in this history of God's salvation of his people, right now at this point, this is the way it needs to be. He's saying, right now, you're still the one who is preparing the way for me, and I'm still the mightier one who's coming. So right now, this is what we need to do. And then he says, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean by it's fitting for us? Jesus means that he needs John's help to do this. If John doesn't help him do these things, Jesus can't accomplish all righteousness. You see, Jesus can't just walk out in the Jordan River and baptize himself any more than Amy could have entered the baptistry and baptized herself. There are two people required for the task. So Jesus is saying, John, we need to do this together. Together, right now at this point in history, we need to fulfill all righteousness. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean to fulfill all righteousness? How are Jesus and John going into the river and John baptizing Jesus? How is that going to fulfill all righteousness? Well, for that, we need to understand what the word righteousness means. It's a word that's used in the New Testament in a whole lot of different ways, and most of them are very theologically important. But thankfully for us, Matthew uses the word very consistently. It's always on the lips of Jesus, and nearly every time it means God's will. Somebody's righteous if they live their life in accordance with the commands of God, with the will of God, with the plan of God. If they're doing those things, then they're righteous. So what Jesus is saying to John is he's saying that if we do these things, if if you baptize me in the water, we will be living our lives in accordance with God's plan. If we don't do this, we're not. If you don't baptize me, we're outside the will of God. We're outside the plan of God. But for some reason, this is God's plan, and this is what we need to do to fulfill all righteousness. So let's think about application here real quick before we move on. I think there's two ways that we can apply what happens here. The first is thinking about John. John tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. He tries to prevent him from accomplishing God's will for them. Later in the gospel, we're going to see Peter do the same thing. Jesus is going to tell the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, no, that's not what's going to happen. We need to do it this way. You see, as fallen and sinful people, there are so many things about God's plan for the world that just don't make sense to us. They don't seem fitting to us any more than it seemed fitting to John that he should baptize Jesus. It doesn't make sense to us that the God of the universe would enter our world as an infant. It doesn't make sense to us that the messenger that would prepare the way for the Messiah would be his relative who everybody thinks is just a little bit crazy. It doesn't make sense to us that the 12 guys that he kicks off his ministry with are just common people, and they hardly ever understand anything that he says. We would have picked 12 different people. We would have picked 12 of the best students, or the best speakers, or the best something. We wouldn't pick 12 guys who didn't do anything well. And just like John, and just like Peter, if we would have been there, we would have prevented him from accomplishing God's will if we could have. Even tonight, we do the same thing. 
The commands of Scripture are perfectly clear for us. What God's plan for us is perfectly clear. And yet we prevent Him. We refuse to obey because it just doesn't make sense to us. We think that our way is better, and so we try to prevent Him from bringing about His will in our life. So tonight, ask yourself honestly and answer, where are you trying to prevent the Lord from accomplishing His will for you? In in which area of your life, and it's probably many areas for most of us, where are we refusing His will because we think that we know best? Moving back to the text, let's, let's answer that first question. Why was Jesus baptized? The surface level answer is simple. He was baptized because that's what would fulfill all righteousness. If they were to do this thing, they'd be within God's plan. But why was it God's plan for Jesus to be baptized? Why was it in his plan for him to come 70 miles to where John was to be baptized by him? Couldn't he have done it another way? Well, I kind of hinted at the answer at the beginning, uh, but Jesus is baptized because it's one of those many things that he does to identify with us. You see, we affirm the fact that God, that Jesus is our substitute. We know that he died for us. And that's right. We, we, sh- we should hold to that. We should believe that. But what we miss a lot of the time is that Jesus also lived for us. He's our substitute not only in death, but also in life. If we think about what was happening at this time, what these people were doing when they came to be baptized, people from all over Palestine streamed to where John was. They confessed their sins, they repented, and then he baptized them. And they left the water with a renewed commitment to God. But what happened? Whether it was five minutes later, or when they got home, or or two weeks later, all of them, every single one of those people that John baptized in the water, broke that commitment. They went back into a life of sin, and sure, they could have went back down to John at the Jordan and gotten baptized again and renewed that commitment again, but then they just break it and break it and break it and break it. Because no matter who it was, none of them would have ever been able to obey. But God had it in his plan to send Jesus down to the river to be baptized for us. He underwent the baptism that we couldn't undergo, that we couldn't keep, and kept the commitment that we would break over and over and over again. Jesus is our substitute, not only in death, but also in life. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. That's why Jesus is baptized. That's what he's doing in this text. He's identifying with us as our Savior. In verses 16 and 17, we see what happens after Jesus' baptism. Verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So three things happen here. Three things happen after Jesus' baptism. The first is that the heavens are opened. The second is that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And the third is that a voice from heaven speaks. So let's take these one at a time. The first, the heavens are opened. I think that we read a phrase like that in Scripture, and we think that 
it's a lot like the opening of The Simpsons. There are these, these pretty white cumulus clouds that, that slowly part, reveal a blue sky with maybe some light gleaming forth, and then there's a faint choir of angels that sings in the background. Something that Thomas Kincaid would paint and people would hang on their living room walls. But I think if that's the way we view it, we miss the point. You see, the heavens being open, it, Scripture shows us, we have some passages up here uh, in Acts and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Revelation, when the heavens are open, something is revealed to us about God. This would have been far more violent than it was peaceful. It wouldn't have been this peaceful, slow parting of the clouds. The barrier between heaven and earth is broken so that God can reveal some of who he is to us. So these people would have recognized what was happening. They would have seen unmistakably the fact that something is happening in the heavens to get their attention. If you think about somebody slowly unbuttoning their shirt and taking it off and throwing it on the floor versus, say, Hulk Hogan ripping off a tank. Both accomplish the same thing. In, in both instances, the shirt is removed. But one of them is impossible to miss. And one of them says something different is happening here. Something out of the ordinary that you wouldn't normally expect happens. And so, with the heavens opening, God is preparing the people below to hear what it is that he's going to say. He's saying something remarkable is about to happen and everybody needs to pay attention. The second thing says that he saw the Spirit descend like a dove. Now, Matthew specifies that Jesus is the one who sees these things. Jesus saw it. But we know from other Gospels that at least John the Baptist saw the Spirit, and I think we're supposed to understand that everybody there would have seen this. You see, the way the Spirit came on people was to set them apart for a work of God. Uh, the, the word we use to talk about Jesus, we say that he's the Messiah. What that means is it means that he is God's anointed. Whenever you see the phrase in the Old Testament, God's anointed, the word is Messiah. And so these people who are set apart by God, they're anointed by God to do things, are God's anointed. They're God's Messiah in some sense. So God sending the Spirit on Jesus sets him apart from everyone else. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit didn't work the way it does now. We receive the Spirit when we're converted, and it stays with us forever. If we're truly converted, we have the Spirit, and we have it forever. We're indwelt by it. In the Old Testament, the Spirit rushes on people and temporarily equips them to do something, and then he rushes off. So we have this passage from 1 Samuel, where uh, Samuel is anointing David as king. He's recognizing David as the true king of Israel, and the Spirit rushes upon David. Moments later in the text, we find out that the Spirit departed from Saul. You see, Saul wasn't God's anointed king anymore. So he didn't have the Spirit. The Spirit went to David. So here in this text, what we see is we see God setting apart Jesus for his messianic mission in the world. He's saying that before, before you were baptized, before I sent the Spirit, you were the mightier one who was coming. But now that you have the Spirit, now that I have recognized you publicly, I've anointed you in front of all these people who are here, now you're ready to start your ministry. Now you're ready to start your mission. Now you're ready to fulfill the calling that I have for you. And just in case people miss that, just in case they miss the heavens being ripped open, and they missed him sending the Spirit like a dove upon his Son, he speaks from heaven. And he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
And this is where we know that this is for everybody that's here present. You see, if I, if I walk up to Jason and I say, Jason, you're a great guy. I like you a lot. If nobody else is here, that makes sense. It might kind of creep him out a little bit, but it would make sense. But if I walk up to him and I say, this guy is a great guy. I like him. If nobody else is here, that doesn't really make sense, and it would probably creep him out even more. But the fact that I'm saying this, I'm saying to all of you, this is the guy I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Dave. I'm not talking about Brian. I'm talking about Jason. This guy right here, I like. (laughs) In the same way, that's what God is doing. He's speaking from heaven, and he's pointing Jesus out among all these other people. He sent his spirit, he's opened heavens, and he's saying that this guy right here, he isn't just the Messiah. He's not just my anointed servant in the world. He's also my son, and I am pleased with him. This week, I heard one of the most uh, baffling, uh, crazy things I've heard in a really long time. I go to this book study with some other pastors from the area, and one of those guys is Dr. Todd, who... I guess, teaches physics at HLG and some other stuff from time to time. And we were talking about the speaking voice of God, about God speaking in the world. And one of the things that he said was just astounding to me. He said that when the way sound works, like I say something and molecules move in front of me. And he said that every molecule that's been set in motion by speech is still moving in some sense. We probably can't hear it, and we probably can't detect it with the technology we have, but everywhere on Earth, those molecules are still moving. They're set in motion, and they don't stop. So one of the other guys said, so when God speaks in the Bible, those, those, those molecules are still moving. And he said, from a physics, physics standpoint, yeah, they are. So what God says here, God says he speaks from heaven and he set molecules in motion that are still moving today. We probably can't hear the sound. We can't figure out where they are. But somewhere on our planet, they're moving. And I think that what this can do is it can make this more real to us. You see, we, I think, separate ourselves from the world of the New Testament. We think that that's some other place. God spoke in some other place, not where we are. But if we had the ability right now, we could detect the fact that there are molecules still moving because God spoke in our world. Because he sent his son, his beloved son, with whom he's well pleased into our world. And I think that the fact that God delights in his son should mean two things to us. The first is that we should delight in him too. See, God delights in his son, first of all because he's his son, but also because he's God. He can delight in Jesus in a way he can delight in no other thing because Jesus is himself. Jesus is God. And just like that, he should be our greatest joy. He should be our greatest delight. More than anything else, he should be. And the reason why is because we know that from Jesus' standpoint, nothing else satisfies other than God. You see, if we think about the fact, and we've talked about how Jesus led a perfect life for us, that means that even though he was like us in every respect, even though he was faced with temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation, he never gave in. 
And this makes me think of the GRE test. The GRE is a test you take for graduate school, and the way it works is you get asked a question. And if you get the question right, you get a harder question. If you get the harder question right, you get a harder question, and on and on and on and on until you get one wrong. Jesus never got to a harder question. All of them, he answered the right way. He never got one of those questions wrong. And so because of that, if you, if you take that and you apply it to temptation, Jesus knows far more than anyone will ever know about sin and about temptation because he's withstood them all. Every single one, he got the right answer. And he did that because he knew that the only thing that was ever going to satisfy him was delighting in God. Because he delighted in his father, just like his father delighted in him, he never gave in to anything else because he knew that that would never satisfy him. In the same way, we can take his example and know that nothing is ever going to satisfy us other than delighting in God. No matter what we try to put in there, whether it's entertainment or money or power or sex or whatever, it's never going to satisfy us like delighting in God will. The other thing this should tell us is that God delights in us. By virtue of our adoption as sons and daughters of God, God delights in us. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Christ. He sees what he's done, how he lived and how he died. He doesn't see us. And when it comes to standing with God, we're either in his pleasure or in his displeasure. We're either pleasing to God or we're not. There's no second or third option. And the Bible tells us that the only way, the only way for us to become pleasing to God is to have faith. Hebrews says without faith, and what I mean there is saving faith. Without saving faith in Christ, it's impossible to please God. And so our only hope, our only hope for God to delight in us and to say something like this about us is to be in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is to trust in Him and in Him alone for salvation. So if you're here tonight and you haven't done that, if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, you know that you're under the displeasure of God. You're not pleasing to Him. And the only thing that you can do, the only hope you're ever going to have, no matter what you do, you'll never be pleasing to Him unless He sees His Son when He sees you. So if you don't know what that means, if you don't know how to do that, please talk to somebody here tonight before you leave. Talk to them about how you can become pleasing to God by having faith in Christ. For those of us who are here and and do have a relationship with Christ, we can be encouraged that we are pleasing to God. You see, whenever Dinah screws up, whenever she falls down or whenever she disobeys, Even though she's done something wrong, even though she's done something that could frustrate me or irritate me, she's still pleasing to me. That's because she's my daughter, because I love her, because I'm well pleased with her no matter what she does. But even more perfectly than a father's love for his child here is God's love for his son. It's something that nothing we could ever do to compare to. We could never understand the depth of the father's love for the son. 
And when we are in Christ, when we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, in a very similar way, He loves us like He loves His Son. So even when we screw up, we shouldn't wallow in self-pity. We shouldn't wallow in defeat. We should get back up and know that our Father delights in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the world you spoke this truth about your son into wasn't some other place, but that it's this place, our world. Lord, and that that tells us that you sent your son here, not somewhere else. You sent him to redeem us and not some other people in some other place. And that you clearly communicated when you opened heaven to tell us that he's your son. And that you are pleased with him because he obeys where we could not. And he has faith where we don't. And because he died and bore the penalty that we were due for our sins. And because of that, we too can have your pleasure. Father, I ask that you would make that real to us. That we would know in our hearts how you feel about us. That you would make us feel your pleasure. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it's true and that it's reliable. And that you spoke it for us. It's in your son's name we pray.